Chapter 8 of the Suppression of the African Slave Trade to the United States of America, 1638 to 1870, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, InterfaceAudio.com the suppression of the african slave trade to the united states of america sixteen thirty eight to eighteen seventy by w e b du bois chapter eight the period of attempted suppression eighteen o seven to eighteen twenty five fifty five the act of eighteen o seven fifty six the first question how shall illegally imported africans be disposed of fifty seven the second question how shall violations be punished? 58. The third question. How shall the interstate coastwise slave trade be protected? 56. Legislative history of the bill. 60. Enforcement of the act. 61. Evidence of the continuance of the trade. 62. Apathy of the federal government. 63. Typical cases. 64. The Supplementary Acts, 1818 to 1820. 65. The Enforcement of the Supplementary Acts, 1818 to 1825. 55. The Act of 1807. The first great goal of anti slavery effort in the United States had been, since the Revolution, the suppression of the slave trade by national law it would hardly be too much to say that the haitian revolution in addition to its influence in the years from seventeen ninety one to eighteen o six was one of the main causes that rendered the accomplishment of this aim possible at the earliest constitutional moment to the great influence of the fears of the south was added the failure of the french designs on louisiana of which toussaint l'ouverture was the most probable cause the cessation of louisiana in eighteen o three challenged and aroused the north on the slavery question again put the carolina and georgia slave traders in the saddle to the dismay of the border states and brought the whole slave trade question vividly before the public conscience another scarcely less potent influence was naturally the great anti-slavery movement in england which after a mighty struggle of eighteen years was about to gain its first victory in the british act of eighteen o seven president jefferson in his pacificatory message of december second eighteen o six said i congratulate you fellow-citizens on the approach of the period at which you may interpose your authority constitutionally to withdraw the citizens of the united states from all further participation in those violations of human rights which have been so long continued on the unoffended inhabitants of africa and which the morality the reputation and the best interests of our country have long been eager to proscribe although no law you may pass may take prohibitory effect till the first day of the year one thousand eight hundred and eight yet the intervening period is not too long to prevent by timely notice expeditions which cannot be completed before that day in pursuance of this recommendation the very next day senator bradley of vermont 
introduced into the senate a bill after a complicated legislative history became the act of march second eighteen o seven prohibiting the african slave trade three main questions were to be settled by this bill first and most prominent that of the disposal of illegally imported africans second that of the punishment of those concerned in the importation third that of the proper limitation of the interstate traffic by water the character of the debate on these three questions as well as the state of public opinion is illustrated by the fact that forty of the sixty pages of officially reported debates are devoted to the first question less than twenty to the second and only two to the third a sad commentary on the previous enforcement of state and national laws is the readiness with which it was admitted that wholesale violations of the law would take place indeed southern men declared that no strict law against the slave trade could be executed in the south and that it was only by the playing on the motives of personal interest that the trade could be checked the question of punishment indicated the slowly changing moral attitude of the south toward the slave system early boldly said a large majority of people in the southern states do not consider slavery as even an evil the south in fact insisted on regarding man-stealing as a minor offence a misdemeanor rather than a crime finally in the short and sharp debate on the interstate coastwise trade the growing economic side of the slavery question came to the front the vested interests argument was squarely put and the future interstate trade almost consciously provided for from these considerations it is doubtful as to how far it was expected that the act of eighteen o seven would check the slave traffic at any rate so far as the south was concerned there seemed to be an evident desire to limit the trade but little thought that this statute would definitely suppress it fifty six the first question how shall illegally imported africans be disposed of the dozen or more propositions on the question of the disposal of illegally imported africans may be divided into two chief heads representing two radically opposed parties one that illegally imported africans be free although they might be indentured for a term of years or removed from the country two that such africans be sold as slaves the arguments on these two propositions which were many and far-reaching may be roughly divided into three classes political constitutional and moral the political argument reduced to its lowest terms ran thus those wishing to free the negroes illegally imported declared that to enslave them would be to perpetrate the very evil which the law was designed to stop by the same law they said we condemn the man-stealer and become the receivers of his stolen goods we punish the criminal and then step into his place and complete the crime they said that the objection to free negroes was no valid excuse for if the southern people really feared this class they would consent to the imposing of such penalties on illicit traffic as would stop the importation of a single slave moreover forfeiture and sale of the negroes implied a property right for them which did not exist 
waiving this technical point and allowing them to be forfeited to the government then the government should either immediately set them free or at the most indenture them for a term of years otherwise the law would be an encouragement to violators it certainly will be said they if the importer can find means to evade the penalty of the act for there he has all the advantage of a market enhanced by our ineffectual attempt to prohibit they claim that even the indenturing of the ignorant barbarian for life was better than slavery and sloan declared that the northern states would receive the freed negroes willingly rather than having them enslaved the argument of those who insisted that the negroes should be sold was tersely put by macon in adopting our measures on this subject we must pass such a law as can be executed early expanded this it is a principle in legislation as correct as any which has ever prevailed that to give effect to laws you must not make them repugnant to the passions and wishes of the people among whom they are to operate how then in this instance stands the fact do not gentlemen from every quarter of the union prove on the discussion of every question that has ever arisen in the house having the most remote bearing on the given freedom to the africans in the bosom of our country that it has excited the deepest sensibility in the breasts of those where slavery exists and why is this so it is because those who from experience know the extent of the evil believe that the most formidable aspect in which it can present itself is by making these people free among them yes sir though slavery is an evil regretted by every man in the country to have among us in any considerable quantity persons of this description is an evil far greater than slavery itself does any gentleman want proof of this i answer that all proof is useless no fact can be more notorious with this belief on the minds of the people where slavery exists and where the importation will take place if at all we are about to turn loose in a state of freedom all persons brought in after the passage of this law i ask gentlemen to reflect and say whether such a law opposed to the ideas the passions the views and the affections of the people of the southern states can be executed i tell them no it is impossible why because no man will inform why because to inform will be to lead to an evil which will be deemed greater than the offence of which information is given because it will be opposed to the principle of self-preservation and to the love of family no no man will be disposed to jeopard his life and the lives of his countrymen and if no one dare inform the whole authority of the government cannot carry the law into effect the whole people will rise up against it why because to enforce it would be to turn loose in the bosom of the country firebrands that would consume them this was the more tragic form of the argument it also had a mercenary side which was presented with equal emphasis it was repeatedly said that the only way to enforce the law was to play off individual interests against each other the profit from the sale of illegally imported negroes was declared to be the only sufficient inducement to give information of their importation 
give up the idea of forfeiture and i shall challenge the gentleman to invent fines penalties or punishments of any sort sufficient to restrain the slave trade if such negroes be freed i tell you that slaves will continue to be imported as heretofore you cannot get hold of the ships employed in this traffic besides slaves will be brought into georgia from east florida they will be brought into the mississippi territory from the bay of mobile you cannot inflict any other penalty or devise any other adequate means of prevention than a forfeiture of the africans in whose possession they may be found after importation then too when foreigners smuggled in negroes who then could be operated on but the purchasers there was the rub it was their interest alone which by being operated on would produce a check snap their purse-strings break open their strong-box deprive them of their slaves and by destroying the temptation to buy you put an end to the trade nothing short of a forfeiture of the slave would afford an effectual remedy again it was argued that it was impossible to prevent imported negroes from becoming slaves or what was just as bad from being sold as vagabonds or indentured for life even our own laws it was said recognized the title of the african slave factor in the transported negroes and if the importer have no title why do we legislate why not let the african immigrant alone get on as he may if he should be returned to africa his home could not be found and he would in all probability be sold into slavery again the constitutional argument was not urged as seriously as the foregoing but it had a considerable place on the one hand it was urged that if the negroes were forfeited they were forfeited to the united states government which could dispose of them as it saw fit on the other hand it was said that the united states as owner was subject to state laws and could not free the negroes contrary to such laws some alleged that the freeing of such negroes struck at the title to all slave property others thought that as property in slaves was not recognized in the constitution it could not be in a statute the question also arose as to the source of the power of congress over the slave trade southern men derived it from the clause on the commerce and declared that it exceeded the power of congress to declare negroes imported into a slave state free against the laws of that state that congress could not determine what should or should not be property in a state northern men replied that according to this principle forfeiture and sale in massachusetts would be illegal that the power of congress over the trade was derived from the restraining clause as a non-existent power could not be restrained and that the united states could act under her general powers as executor of the law of nations the moral argument as to the disposal of illegally imported negroes was interlarded with all the others on the one side it began with the rights of man and descended to a stickling for the decent appearance of a statute book on the other side it began with the uplifting of the heathen and descended to a denial of the applicability of moral principles to the question said holland of north carolina it is admitted that the condition of the slaves in the southern state is much superior to that of those in africa 
who then will say that the trade is immoral but in fact morality has nothing to do with this traffic for as joseph clay declared it must appear to every man of common sense that the question could be considered in a commercial point of view only the other side declared that by the laws of god and man these captured negroes are entitled to their freedom as clearly and absolutely as we are nevertheless some were willing to leave them to the tender mercies of the slave states so long as the statute book was disgraced by no explicit recognition of slavery such arguments brought some sharp sarcasm on those who seemed anxious to legislate for the honor and glory of the statute book some desired to know what honor you will derive from a law that will be broken every day of your lives they would rather boldly sell the negroes and turn the proceeds over to charity the final settlement of the question was as follows section four and neither the importer nor any person or persons claiming from or under him shall hold any right or title whatsoever to any negro mulatto or person of color nor the service of labor thereof who may be imported or brought within the united states or territories thereof in violation of this law but the same shall remain subject to any regulations not contravening the provisions of this act which the legislatures of the several states or territories at any time hereafter may make for disposing of any such negro mulatto or person of color fifty seven the second question how shall violations be punished the next point in importance was that of the punishment of offenders the half dozen specific propositions reduced themselves to two one a violation should be considered a crime or felony and be punished by death two a violation should be considered a misdemeanor and punished by fine and imprisonment advocates of the severer punishment dwelt on the enormity of the offence it was one of the highest crimes man could commit and a captain of a ship engaged in this traffic was guilty of murder the law of god punished the crime with death and any one would rather be hanged than be enslaved it was a peculiarly deliberate crime in which the offender did not act in sudden passion but had ample time for reflection then too crimes of much less magnitude are punished with death shall we punish the stealer of fifty dollars with death and the man-stealer with imprisonment only piracy forgery and the fraudulent sinking of vessels are punishable with death yet these crimes only against property whereas the importation of slaves a crime committed against the liberty of man and inferior only to murder or treason is accounted nothing but a misdemeanor here indeed lies the remedy for the evil of freeing illegally imported negroes in making the penalty so severe that none will be brought in if the south is sincere they will unite to a man to execute the law to free such negroes is dangerous to enslave them wrong to return them impracticable to indenture them difficult therefore by a death penalty keep them from being imported here the east had a chance to throw back the taunts of the south by urging the south to unite with them in hanging the new england slave traders 
assuring the south that so far from charging their southern brethren with cruelty or severity in hanging them they would acknowledge the favor with gratitude finally if the southerners would refuse to execute so severe a law they did not consider the offense great they would probably refuse to execute any law at all for the same reason the opposition answered that the death penalty was more than proportionate to the crime and therefore immoral i cannot believe said stanton of rhode island that a man ought to be hung for only stealing a negro it was argued that the trade was after all but a transfer from one master to another that slavery was worse than the slave trade and the south did not consider slavery a crime how could it then punish the trade so severely and not reflect on the institution severity it was said was also inexpedient severity often increases crime if the punishment is too great people will sympathize with offenders and will not inform against them said mr mosley when the penalty is excessive or disproportioned to the offense it will naturally create a repugnance to the law and render its execution odious john randolph argued against even fine and imprisonment on the ground that such an excessive penalty could not in such case be constitutionally imposed by a government possessed of the limited powers of the government of the united states the bill as passed punished infractions as follows for equipping a slaver a fine of twenty thousand dollars and forfeiture of the ship for transporting negroes a fine of five thousand dollars and forfeiture of the ship and negroes for transporting and selling negroes a fine of one thousand to ten thousand dollars imprisonment from five to ten years and forfeiture of the ship and negroes for knowingly buying illegally imported negroes a fine of eight hundred dollars for each negro and forfeiture how shall the interstate coastwise slave trade be protected the first proposition was to prohibit the coastwise slave trade altogether but an amendment reported to the house allowed it in any vessel or species of craft whatever it is probable that the first proposition would have prevailed had it not been for the vehement opposition of randolph and early they probably foresaw the value which virginia would derive from this trade in the future and consequently randolph violently declared that if the amendment did not prevail the southern people would set the law at defiance he would begin the example he maintained by the first proposition the proprietor of sacred and chartered rights is prevented the constitutional use of his property the conference committee finally arranged a compromise forbidding the coastwise trade for purposes of sale in vessels under forty tons this did not suit early who declared that the law with this provision would not prevent the introduction of a single slave randolph too would rather lose the bill he had rather lose all the bills of the session he had rather lose every bill passed since the establishment of the government than agree to the provision contained in this slave bill he predicted the severance of the slave and free states if disunion should ever come congress was however weary with the dragging of the bill and it passed both houses with the compromise provision randolph was so dissatisfied that he had a committee appointed the next day and introduced an amendatory bill 
both this bill and another similar one introduced at the next session failed of consideration 59 legislative history of the bill on december twelfth eighteen o five senator stephen r bradley of vermont gave notice of a bill to prohibit the introduction of slaves after eighteen o eight by a vote of eighteen to nine leave was given and the bill read a first time on the seventeenth on the eighteenth however it was postponed until the first monday in december eighteen o six the presidential message mentioning the matter senator bradley december third eighteen o six gave notice of a similar bill which was brought in on the eighth and on the ninth referred to a committee consisting of bradley stone giles gaillard and baldwin this bill passed after some consideration january twenty seventh it provided among other things that violations of the act should be felony punishable with death and forbade the interstate coast trade meantime in the house mr bidwell of massachusetts had proposed february fourth eighteen o six as an amendment to a bill taxing slaves imported that importation after december thirty first eighteen o seven be prohibited on pain of fine and imprisonment and forfeiture of ship this was rejected by a vote of eighty six to seventeen on december third eighteen o six the house in appointing committees on the message ordered that mr early mr thomas m randolph mr john campbell mr keenan mr cook mr kelly and mr van rensselaer be appointed a committee on the slave trade this committee reported a bill on the fifteenth which was considered but finally december eighteenth recommitted it was reported in an amended form on the nineteenth and amended in committee of the whole so as to make violation a misdemeanor punishable by fine and imprisonment instead of a felony punishable by death a struggle over the disposal of the cargo then ensued a motion by bidwell to accept the cargo from forfeiture was lost seventy seven to thirty nine another motion by bidwell may be considered the crucial vote on the whole bill it was an amendment to the forfeiture clause and read provided that no person shall be sold as a slave by virtue of this act this resulted in a tie vote sixty to sixty but the casting vote of the speaker macon of north carolina defeated it new england voted solidly in favor of it the middle states stood four four and two against it and the six southern states stood solid against it on january eighth the bill went again to a select committee of seventeen by a vote of seventy six to forty six the bill was reported back amended january twentieth and on the twenty eighth the senate bill was also presented to the house on the ninth tenth and eleventh of february both bills were considered in committee of the whole and the senate bill finally replaced the house bill after several amendments had been made the bill was then passed by a vote of one thirteen to five the senate agreed to the amendments including that substituting fine and imprisonment for the death penalty but asked for a conference on the provision which left the interstate coast trade free the six conferees succeeded in bringing the houses to agree by limiting the trade to vessels over forty tons and requiring registry of the slaves 
the following diagram shows in graphic form the legislative history of the act bradley gives notice december twelfth eighteen o five leave given bill read december seventeenth eighteen o five postponed one year december eighteenth eighteen o five eighteen o six february fourth bidwell's amendment notice december third committee on slave trade bill introduced december eighth committed december ninth reported december fifteenth seventeenth eighteenth nineteenth twenty third twenty ninth and thirty first eighteen o seven january fifth seventh eighth read third time recommitted reported january fifteenth sixteenth twentieth reported amended third reading january twenty sixth passed the twenty seventh the twenty eighth senate bill reported february ninth tenth eleventh senate bill amended february twelfth february thirteenth reported from house and passed reported to house the seventeenth reported back february eighteenth house insists asks conference house asks conference two to five conference report adopted conference report adopted two to six bill enrolled to eight march second signed by the president to february fifth conference report adopted february sixth conference report adopted bill enrolled february eighth march second signed by the president the bill received the approval of president jefferson march second eighteen o seven and became thus the act to prohibit the importation of slaves into any port or place within the jurisdiction of the united states from and after the first day of january in the year of our lord one thousand eight hundred and eight the debates in the senate were not reported those in the house were prolonged and bitter and hinged especially on the disposal of the slaves the punishment of offenders and the coast trade men were continually changing their votes and the bill seesawed backward and forward in committee and out until the house was thoroughly worn out on the whole the strong anti-slavery men like bidwell and sloan were outgeneraled by the southerners like early and williams and considering the immense moral backing of the anti-slavery party from the revolutionary fathers down the bill of eighteen o seven can hardly be regarded as a great anti-slavery victory sixty enforcement of the act the period so confidently looked forward to by the constitutional fathers had at last arrived the slave trade was prohibited and much oratory and poetry were expended in celebration of the event in the face of this let us see how the act of eighteen o seven was enforced and what it really accomplished it is noticeable in the first place that there was no special set of machinery provided for the enforcement of this act the work fell first to the secretary of the treasury as head of the customs collection then through the activity of cruisers the secretary of the navy gradually came to have oversight and eventually the whole matter was lodged with him although the departments of state and war were more or less active on different occasions later at the advent of the lincoln government the department of the interior was charged with the enforcement of the slave trade laws 
it would indeed be surprising if amid so much uncertainty and shifting of responsibility the law were not poorly enforced poor enforcement moreover in the years eighteen o eight to eighteen twenty meant far more than at almost any other period for these years were all over the european world a time of stirring economic change and the set which forces might then take would in a later period be unchangeable without a cataclysm perhaps from eighteen o eight to eighteen fourteen in the midst of agitation and war there was some excuse for carelessness from eighteen fourteen on however no such palliation existed and the law was probably enforced as the people who made it wished it enforced most of the southern states rather tardily passed the necessary supplementary acts disposing of illegally imported africans a few appear not to have passed any some of these laws like the alabama mississippi territory act of eighteen fifteen directed such negroes to be sold by the proper officer of the court to the highest bidder at public auction for ready money one half the proceeds went to the informer or to the collector of customs the other half to the public treasury other acts like that of north carolina in eighteen sixteen directed the negroes to be sold and disposed of for the use of the state one-fifth of the proceeds went to the informer the georgia act of eighteen seventeen directed that the slaves be either sold or given to the colonization society for transportation providing the society reimburse the state for all expense incurred and pay for the transportation in this manner machinery of somewhat clumsy build and varying pattern was provided for the carrying out of the national act sixty one evidence of the continuance of the trade undoubtedly the act of eighteen o seven came very near being a dead letter the testimony supporting this view is voluminous it consists of presidential messages reports of cabinet officers letters of collection and revenue letters of district attorneys reports of committees of congress reports of naval commanders statements made on the floor of congress the testimony of eyewitnesses and the complaints of home and foreign anti-slavery societies when i was young writes mr fowler of connecticut the slave trade was still carried on by connecticut shipmasters and merchant adventurers for the supply of southern ports this trade was carried on by the consent of the southern states under the provisions of the federal constitution until eighteen o eight and after that time clandestinely there was a good deal of conversation on the subject in private circles other states were said to be even more involved than connecticut the african society of london estimated that down to eighteen sixteen fifteen of the sixteen thousand slaves annually taken from africa were shipped by americans notwithstanding the prohibitory act of america which was passed in eighteen o seven ships bearing the american flag continued to trade for slaves until eighteen o nine when in consequence of a decision in the english prize appeal courts which rendered american slave ships liable to capture and condemnation that flag suddenly disappeared from the coast its place was almost instantaneously supplied by the spanish flag which with one or two exceptions was now seen for the first time on the african coast engaged in covering the slave trade 
this sudden substitution of the spanish for the american flag seemed to confirm what was established in a variety of instances by more direct testimony that the slave trade which now for the first time assumed a spanish dress was in reality only the trade of other nations in disguise so notorious did the participation of americans in the traffic become that president madison informed congress in his message december fifth eighteen ten that it appears that american citizens are instrumental in carrying on a traffic in enslaved africans equally in violation of the laws of humanity and in defiance of those of their own country the same just and benevolent motives which produced the interdiction and force against this criminal conduct will doubtless be felt by congress in devising further means of suppressing the evil the secretary of the navy wrote the same year to charleston south carolina i hear not without great concern that the law prohibiting the importation of slaves has been violated in frequent instances near st mary's testimony as to violations of the law and suggestions for improving it also came in from district attorneys the method of introducing negroes was simple a slave smuggler says after resting a few days at st augustine i agreed to accompany diego on a land trip through the united states where a caffle of negroes was to precede us for whose disposal the shrewd portuguese had already made arrangements with my uncle's consignees i soon learned how readily and at what profits the florida negroes were sold into the neighboring american states the caffle under charge of negro drivers was to strike up the escambia river and thence cross the boundary into georgia where some of our wild africans were mixed with various squads of native blacks and driven inland till sold off singly or by couples on the road at this period eighteen twelve the united states had declared the african slave trade illegal and passed stringent laws to prevent the importation of negroes yet the spanish possessions were thriving on this inland exchange of negroes and mulattoes florida was a sort of nursery for slave breeders and many american citizens grew rich by trafficking in guinea negroes and smuggling them continually in small parties through the southern united states at the time i mentioned the business was a lively one owing to the war then going on between the states and england and the unsettled condition of affairs on the border the spanish flag continued to cover american slave traders the rapid rise of privateering during the war was not caused solely by patriotic motives for many armed ships fitted out in the united states obtained a thin spanish disguise at havana and transported thousands of slaves to brazil and the west indies sometimes all disguise was thrown aside and the american flag appeared on the slave coast as in the cases of the paz the rebecca the rosa formerly the privateer commodore perry the dorset of baltimore and the saucy jack governor mccarthy of sierra leone wrote in eighteen seventeen the slave trade is carried on most vigorously by the spaniards portuguese americans and french i have had it affirmed from several quarters and do believe it to be a fact that there is a greater number of vessels employed in that traffic than at any former period End of chapter eight
Recording by Lawrence Trask, Mount Vernon, Ohio, InterfaceAudio.com.